everyone, and welcome back to the Mind Movement Health Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Boyle, and this week I have a returning guest to the show. So this is our first returning guest to the podcast, and that is the amazing physiotherapist, Kathy Watson. Now, Kathy has been a physio for more than 20 years, and her focus is on treating women with pelvic floor pain and issues, bladder and bowel incontinence and prolapse. So she's a pelvic floor physiotherapist, and she's coming back on the show this week to chat about perimenopause and menopause and how this not only affects our body, but the tissues in our body, our pelvic floor, and what changes we experience as women and some of the symptoms we may experience and some of the things we can do to really optimize our pelvic floor health and our overall health when we may be going through these stages of our lives. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Let's have a listen in. Hi, I'm Kate Boyle and welcome to the Mind Movement Health Podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you health information from diet and lifestyle to movement and nutrition. My aim is to bring you bite-sized pieces of information that you can instigate into your everyday life to change your health. Kathy, welcome back to the show. I was just saying in our intro that you are my first return guest. So that's kind of exciting. Woo! Yay! I'm excited. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. I'm so glad you could come back. I was just saying to Kathy off before we started recording that um, within the studio just in the last few weeks, you know, I'd had more women bringing this topic up about pelvic floor and perimenopause and menopause. So I think it's something we need to talk about and we need to highlight. And Kathy has such a wealth of knowledge in this area. So I was super excited um, to tee this up. So thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Yeah, this is a, kind of like a passion project almost now, you know, like there's so much information to get out there. And that's what I just want to keep sharing that knowledge. And the more knowledge women have, the more empowered they are in making better decisions about their health, especially yeah. during this time. A hundred percent. And what kind of made you, you know, you've obviously been, you know, practicing pelvic floor physio for many, many years, but what sort of brought up this passion project of diving into perimenopause and menopause as well? I think because I'm treating, say, primarily women, um, they come in for different vaginal issues. And then I was starting to see maybe similarities amongst my clients and they're in that age range where they could be in perimenopause or maybe post-menopause. Um, and I started asking more questions of my clients and about other different symptoms, other things, because everything's going to play a role in that. It's not just there. It's not just in the in the pelvis. And the more I asked, the more information they would give me. But what I wasn't hearing was, I know lots about this. Um, I know what I can do to help myself. I've had lots of help. But what I was hearing was more, I just suffer through it. I'm just getting through it. Um, I don't know what to do. You know, it was so I started thinking more and more that there's got to be, you know, so much more that can be done here. And then that was just kind of the whole road I went down. So all my education is in that now hormones and through that stage of life. I mean, because that's, we can spend a lot of time in postmenopause, 
you know, we live a lot longer now. So we do need more knowledge. And the more knowledge, then the better we can even like help change our healthcare system, really, because the more knowledge we have, the better we take care of ourselves, maybe the less we have to access it. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of what took me down that road. And I joined NAMS, which is the North American Menopause Society. And that gives, you know, great firsthand evidence-based research. Um, everything comes off of their guidelines. And then there's just tons of coursework. There's so much information in this field. I really just want, I just want women to have it. And I think too, when I started going through perimenopause and feeling all these uncomfortable symptoms, and then when I started looking for help, yeah, it's not really, there's a lot of info out there, but you have to dig for it and you have to research. And that's what I started doing. Like, I want to do evidence-based stuff because I don't want to wing it. I don't want to waste my time. And so I kind of want to collect that and try to give that information to women as well. Yeah. Well, I love that because I feel like, like you said, there is a lot of information out there, but for most women, I'd say the majority of their information probably comes from a friend or a family member that's gone through it. They'll be like, oh, you know, I'm just starting to go through perimenopause and someone will go, oh, yeah, I've had that. You know, I had terrible night sweats, but I saw an acupuncturist and that helped. Or you know what I mean? So a lot of time I think women rely on sort of friends and family and stuff because if you do go to see a doctor, depending on your doctor, they might not offer a lot of help when it comes to the symptoms of menopause. Yeah. And really, it's not in their medical training very much. You know, maybe that'll change over the years, but they don't get a lot of information. They just get the bare basics. And then what and if they're up on the latest research or not, you know, because there was some, you say, as far as hormone therapy goes, there was some maybe misinformation from studies done before and how they found that, oh, maybe that isn't correct. Maybe this could be more helpful. But if somebody isn't up on that, then they might not even offer that especially all the other like lifestyle tweaks you can make. I think that should definitely be in there. Yeah. And I think that's where if you, you know, a baby seeing a female doctor who's been through it herself, um, you know, she'll often recommend what she knows worked for her. Um, but as you said, it just depends. They've Your GP is really busy and has to know a lot about a broad range of things. So if you are having issues with menopause, who do you really go and see? Right? <laughs> I mean, you definitely got to start with your family doc. That makes sense. But then after that, if you're not getting as much as you need, or maybe you're not getting those lifestyle tweaks, you know, it really needs to be almost more of a team approach. I mean, that ultimately would be really great. You know, so you could have the conversation with a nutritionist. What are the most important things I need to be getting at this point in my life? You know, and exercise. What kind of exercise is good? What is you know, why am I having certain problems? Like, oh, there's so much information. Yeah. But that's what I'm here to provide. Yes. <laughs> now, on a molecular level, what is happening to our hormones when we start to go through perimenopause and then menopause? Right. So perimenopause, you think about perimenopause is maybe that first on average five to seven years before menopause, where we're going to feel symptoms and notice things. Menopause, thinking of that as just but a moment in time. It's a time where we haven't had a period for 12 consecutive months, months, and then we're kind of considered menopause. But that's just a moment. Then we hop right into postmenopause, and that'll be for the remainder of our lifetime. So with perimenopause, we might um, start to see those cycles changing. We, and we could have more bleeding. We could have 
less bleeding. We could have um, heavier, we could have lighter, crampier. We can have all sorts of things happen. And that's probably what we'll notice first. But our estrogen, progesterone are changing for sure. Those are the two biggies. So if we even think about just those two, initially progesterone is decreasing more rapidly than estrogen. Um, we're not, you know, we might not be ovulating as often. And so we don't, don't get that release of progesterone. And that's probably the first thing we'll notice. So that's our rest and digest sort of um, hormone, more or less. And so we need that into sleep. So we might not be sleeping well. Our estrogen is decreasing as well, but we just, but relative to progesterone, it's not decreasing as much as what we would notice of progesterone decreasing. Testosterone is believed to maybe not be impacted by the menopause transition as much and that it's actually impacted by age. But those are the three biggies that's it's making shifts and our body's trying to now adapt. Like, wow, this is new. All of a sudden I had all these hormones all, you know, for a good portion of my lifetime, all of a sudden they're not there to support me with everything I need. And our body's trying to shift and adjust with that new way of being. And how do these changes in the hormones affect our pelvic floor? A lot. (laughs) So if we think about, um, say, our pelvic floor area, vaginal vulva, there's a lot of estrogen receptors in there, as well as anorectal. There's lots of um, estrogen receptors there as well. And so they help keep our, you know, basically keep bugs out. They help keep our um, clothes around our urethra better. So they do all sorts of great things. So when we don't have that, then we might be more prone to things like UTIs, um, dryness, vaginal dryness, um, itchiness that might transfer into pain. We might start having leaking and whether it could be more of a stress-induced leak or we could have more of a frequency or urgency in the bladder. Those are probably the biggies that happen in the pelvic pelvic health. So yeah. it's labeled now genital urinary syndrome of menopause because it's really common and the vaginal muscles are atrophying so they're losing their bulk so now they can't do as much to to help us yeah well I know in the studio that the biggest thing I hear from women that are sort of transitioning into that period is that they don't feel their pelvic floor is as strong they feel like that they lose the strength from their pelvic floor and that's when For me, as a Pilates instructor, when they say that to me, obviously we work on pelvic floor within class and and making sure they're engaging it properly. But I also refer them to see someone like you, a pelvic floor physio, to go get it checked out to see how strong it is. Maybe they have a prolapse, you know, a a low-grade one they don't know about and just as a first point of call, get it checked out. What do you sort of find with your clients? Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you do that. Yay. <laughs> um, so yeah, it could be either weakness. And so, you know, because sometimes you know how in class, somebody thinks they're working their pelvic floor, but they're not really maximizing it as much. It's more abs. So maybe it is a little weaker. Um, maybe the way they're doing their pelvic floor work isn't optimal, and then needs to be tweaked a little bit. Sometimes, though, those muscles, maybe they're doing it too much because common with Pilates, um, you know, it's a lot of core. Yeah. So it could be just a little too, too tight and needs to the resting tone is on too much. And in which case, then it needs to be released a little bit first in order to get that really good contraction afterwards. 
Yeah. And you mentioned UTIs, which I didn't realize the connection with the UTIs because um, so many older people have more frequent UTIs, older people in my life, family and stuff too, um, and have ended up in hospital because of them as well. So, you know, hearing that link between the changes in the levels of estrogen and then the increase of um, UTIs is um, something that I think is really good to be aware of, especially if you are a woman and, and you know, getting older, then that's something to be aware of for sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, what, you know, what can we be doing if we're sort of listening in and going, well, yeah, I think we're sort of heading through, um, heavy, heading through perimenopause or menopause, and I do think I'm having changes happening in my pelvic floor. Where would you suggest someone to start? Mm. Um, if they're still getting regular cycles, I would like to say it'd be a great idea to track your cycle. There's lots of cycle trackers on in the app store, you know, picking something up. That's actually kind of nice to know before things change so much that it's hard to know where you are in your cycle. And I just wanted to say that because especially for super um, athletic women, it's nice to know where you might be more prone to having difficulties or injuries or um, fatigue through the cycle. So it's kind of nice to know that you can even supplement with different types of nutrition or um, you know, as far as whether it's a constipation or a diarrhea issue at different types of the cycle, if the more aware I think we are as women, I think that would be really handy. I wish I had known that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't track my cycle. And so who knows? I don't even have one now, but <laughs> yeah. when I did have one, it would have been nice. Um, so that would be great. I think it's great to know, yeah, what's going on in your pelvic floor. So I mean, of course, I'm, I'm a little biased, but to see a pelvic health physio would be really great to know what's what your muscles are doing or not doing, you know, where you are now. Because as we go through menopause, postmenopause, then we are more prone to all, all those other things like prolapsing, leaking, everything. So it's kind of nice to know, you know, do I need to strengthen or do I need to release? Do I need to do both? Obviously both, but do I need to do one more than the other at first? And then knowing about your bowel habits too. Because constipation can be a huge problem and that will put pressure on the pelvic floor and not allow the pelvic floor to work well. So staying and, you know, having a good gut bacteria and staying on with your nutrition would be super helpful with the pelvic floor as well. And then integrating it. So sometimes we just isolate it, but we need to integrate it. And that's, you know, what you're doing with your, with your clients is integrating their pelvic floor in with their exercise, which is awesome. Yeah. And there are some other options too that you can actually use um for products but that would be more like um hyaluronic acid for moisturizing um which is now some gynees are talking about hey maybe we should have been moisturizing all these years just like we do with our face um hmm. keeping that yeah i don't know nothing something else to think about i know and of course that <laughs> more time more time <laughs> i know i know right <laughs> Um, and even vaginal estrogen can be helpful, but that's, of course, another subject. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just going to say, when it comes to, you know, we just touched on nutrition and the dropping levels of estrogen and progesterone, how does that affect weight? Because I know a lot of my women, when they get to that age, they do often say that they find it 
really hard to shift any weight. They will try everything, you know, they have done in the past that may have even usually worked too, but nothing seems to work. It's very frustrating um, and very real. So the research doesn't super support uh, menopause equals weight gain. And because you're the estrogen and progesterone levels are changing, it automatically equals weight gain. But yet, this is what we find. So um, things like, say, it depends on what the issue is. So say somebody is having night sweats or hot flashes, and they're up all night, then they're not sleeping, then they're in that bad little vicious cycle where they get up in the morning, they're not feeling their best or so fatigued. They're walking past the gym rather than going into the gym. They're just too tired to do that. To stay awake in the day, they might be reaching for more caffeine and sugary things. Now they're eating poorly. And so then they're going to start to notice a little bit of extra weight gain. So there could be that. And that just that can stay in that cycle as the progesterone levels drop and you're not getting that nice restful sleep and you're waking all the time. So that could be one option. Other options are that the ability for the cells to, you know, take the glucose into the cells really easily becomes less easy. So we don't get that easy energy accessibility anymore. And this is where that sort of nutrition, nutritional guidelines come in, like, should there be a little more protein, a little less carbs, but that's a big subject in itself. Um, But Mm. that happens. Things like um, with a little myosin and actin complexes. So inside the little muscle fibers for your listeners, um, the myosin itself doesn't contract as well. It doesn't have as a beefy a contraction. So now your muscles aren't contracting like they used to. And so oftentimes, you know, uh, I'll hear women say, you know, I'm, I'm pushing all that weight all the time in the gym and I'm just not seeing the mass anymore. It's not there like it used to be. So muscle contraction gets harder and visceral weight seems to be a little more prevalent. So kind of a little more fat around the midsection. There's thoughts about how, well, the liver's there and there's a lot of um, cortisol receptors, like our stress hormone receptors around the midsection. And is that why it's kind of packs on around the midsection? Because it would be easier for the liver to get rid of things. But there's lots of theories, but it definitely is happening. I think it's many little things all together. Yeah. Well, I love that you touched on the cortisol because I think cortisol like our stress hormones is so key and I often feel like that's like the missing link to a lot of things in that people will be like you know I've dialed my diet in and I'm exercising and I'm you know hydrating um but often you know there is some level of stress that may be there and it it can be different you know levels of stress it could be maybe you've got an autoimmune condition um and so you know you've got to be really careful around inflammation maybe you've got you know a loved one that is needing extra care so i think addressing the stress is a big thing and maybe something that a lot of women sometimes miss too yeah yeah, I totally agree, Kate. I mean, it's the hardest thing to probably get a handle on. It's easier to just, okay, I'm going to change my exercise or I'm going to change what I'm eating. I think stress is the hardest thing, but that seems to be the lingering part of it, isn't it? Yeah, I really agree. It's the hardest thing too, because a lot of people will be like, well, I ha- yeah, I have a lot on my plate, but I don't feel stressed. And it's like, you might not feel stressed, but inside your body is still, there's still enough stress there that it's causing inflammation and trying to work out 
what works for you and helping to reduce that, you know, and having those tools, like you said, you know, seeing an acupuncturist once a month can be great, but that might not be something you can afford every week, but you need something that you can do pretty much daily, which is where I often suggest, you know, breath work um, or even meditation and that just to try to help reduce those stress levels and not feel like it takes a lot of time or takes a lot of money too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of controllable factors. I mean, we can, there's lots of little things we can put in our own lives to help along the way. All yes. Things, I mean, herbs and you know, like adaptogens, different adaptogens can be super helpful. And um, do you have any specific adaptogens that you like to potentially suggest to clients? Um, well, we talk about them um, and it depends again, are they stimulatory or are they calming and what they need and what might be better for them. And then of course I refer them to their GP or ND if they're working with the ND or if they're working with their nutritionist as well, um, just to make sure their whole health profile is safe for those particular adaptogens. But, you know, Siberian ginseng, very well known, lots of research on it. That can be super helpful or holy basil for more calming. Um, ashwagandha if there isn't any thyroid sort of issues um in there which oftentimes there are <laughs> but yeah what about you do you suggest that too? yeah i like adaptogens i'll often same with ashwagandha i do like it but you have to be careful with um what you're doing um i do like the different mushroom powders so whether or not you know it's yeah. reishi or lion's mane or those i think they're great too um and maca can be really great too but again it's looking at the person's nutrition you know profile and current health status and that too but yeah definitely i think adaptogens is again one of those like kind of almost niche things that people kind of hear about but they don't really know what they are so yeah but essentially it's just extra added nutrients get can really either help dial up your energy or help promote you know and reduce stress and inflammation so yeah and it makes sense because if you look at them from the compounds of the plant and how those adaptogens help the plant protect itself from external stressors like dehydration, you know, too much heat or parasites. And then we take those same compounds, it kind of makes sense that how the research supports that that's what happens with us as well. We can battle our external stresses better. We can handle them better. Yeah. And I think there is more and more research coming through. It's just, as you said, um, finding it because sometimes you're trying to yeah. sift through different websites or you know and trying to work out what's good hi everyone i'm interrupting this podcast just quickly to let you know about lean 14 if you want to have more energy lose weight start moving and just feel really good again but maybe you're not sure where to start then definitely check out my program lean 14 now, Lean 14 is a complete program with a 14-day food and meal plan, recipes, shopping lists, Pilates workouts, templates for meal prepping and goal setting, as well as video trainings to help you kickstart your health and fitness. It really provides you with an easy to follow, clear plan of where to start with your diet, nutrition, looking after yourself, and the best bit, you can start at any time and there's no crazy food or expensive equipment or complicated instructions involved. It's really simple, it's easy, and best of all, it's effective. And I don't want you to miss out. 
To grab it now, simply head over to the show notes and click the Lean 14 link or head on over to the Mind Movement Health website and under the Programs tab, you can hit Lean 14. Now, this program is based on my 18 years of experience of working in the health and fitness field and the results that I've gotten for thousands of women that I have worked with during that time. So head on over to the show notes and check it out because it will change your life. Yeah. (laughs) It's a process, isn't it, Kate? Yeah, 100%. Now, when it comes to exercise, and I think this is another big one that, you know, women are getting to um, perimenopause and menopause. They also may be going for like their first bone scan, I often find, and they come back and they go, oh, I've actually been told I have osteopenia or osteoporosis or, you know, what types of exercise do you suggest for women, you know, as they're starting to transition to this sort of um, these stages and does it change from what they've been doing you know, earlier on in life? Should should we be making any changes as we reach perimenopause, menopause and postmenopause? Yeah, I guess it yeah, really does depend on what we were doing before. But as far as the bone density, of course, strength training is important. So if somebody isn't doing it, then they need to start. Um, I think that one of the biggest things, though, is there's a lot of push towards really heavy resistance training um, and uh, high intensity. And then, of course, you've got the other side to that. Sometimes high intensity for some women will elevate their cortisol levels and not feel as as good. So there's always like not a really a recipe, I don't think, for any, you know, it's got to be very individual. Um, and I'm definitely, definitely back the heavy resistance training. But uh, I think it's also transitioning somebody into that and making sure they're sleeping well, because it doesn't matter what they try to do. They're not going to be successful in the exercise world if they're not sleeping well and getting all that other that other cycle worked out. Um, but definitely public health, of course, some sort of public health work. They need to know what's going on in their pelvic floor and work that area and integrate it. And then um, the cardio is important. You know, there's so many pieces still. I don't even know if the pieces are so much different as they always have been. We always need all those pieces, but we might need them slightly different. So there's um, some research that's kind of looking at if you're not able to build that kind of muscle hypertrophy, you're not getting that mass or the same kind of lean mass or fat-free mass that you were once before, muscle hypertrophy, that little, one of those little transport chains is now interrupted. And so maybe you need to train more for speed or for strength and that's even heavier. So it's, that's a tough one to have. Some women who are very athletic and are totally into that are no problem transitioning into that and others are going to struggle a little bit more. Yeah, well, what if you're not you suggest? if you're not familiar with it, it can be a bit scary moving in. Um, yeah, I tend to find that increasing the resistance training is definitely necessary for for most women and men. You know, as you start to get older, bone mass isn't as easily sort of kept or laid down. The same with muscle mass. So I find that within you know the Pilates studio, I'll up the loads for them. They'll do a lower amount of reps but an increased load. So we'll vary it. They they might do a, a lighter load, you know, and they might be doing 30 to 40 reps, but then we might put up the load and it'll be like, I want you to aim for 10 to 15 on this heavier load. Yeah. Um, I also tend to vary the speed of the exercise yeah. as well. So, you know, generally in Pilates, you'll see, you know, it's out and it's in, like say we're using a reformer and it's quite even. 
but you know we'll often go I'll be like I want you to give me a slow out and a quick in I know you know so we do vary the intensity and the speed of it as well so but I do find that especially for people that are getting older men and women that the resistance training is really important and I always say Pilates is a great place to start because you do use load you know you do use weights but then if you can add stuff in at home because most people are only coming once a week and you know once a week might have been fine in your 30s and 40s but now as you're in your 50s and 60s you might need to up that to two to three times a week so you might be needing to do some stuff at home yeah absolutely and the high intensity part too I like the way you change the speed and everything that's awesome and with the high intensity sort of idea um, it seems to be necessary in some ways because if that glucose doesn't get pulled into the cells as easily as it once was it gets pulled in a different route and easier um, through high intensity. So there is that kind of direction that could be rather useful. Yeah. So essentially your HIIT workout where you're going harder, like, you know, maximum output for 10 to 30 seconds maximum, and then backing off for like one to three minutes. Um, there's fantastic research coming through and whether or not you do that on an exercise bike or when you're lifting weights or whatever you you know whatever realm of exercise varying that intensity and load and then having high intensity and then the lower intensity is meant to achieve amazing results for weight loss um energy output you name it that from what i've seen with the research coming through anyway yeah same with me and i think that's it like Somebody who's been doing such great stuff their whole life, and then they start going through perimenopause and then postmenopause, they're not seeing the same results out of there. It doesn't matter how good the stuff is that they've always done, they have to change it. That's just the way it is. There's something that's not working anymore, and those little tweaks can be made. I have to say, from a personal point of view, high intensity is my least favorite. I don't enjoy it. It's just uh, I like to go into the gym. I'd rather push a lot of weight. I like Pilates. I like yoga. I like all sorts of things. I do not like that type of workout, but I can make myself do it, you know, Yeah, once a week, maybe. Well, I think with the high intensity too, you only have to do it for a short period of time. So it's three to five cycles. So essentially, if you're going hard for 30 seconds and then doing a one and a half minute, five cycles is 10 minutes. So that's yeah. the beauty, I think, of selling the the hit sort yes. of example is that it can you can get and I think one of the recent studies showed that you know that ten minutes you can get the same results from doing say if you did ten minutes on an exercise bike doing thirty seconds hard minute and a half slow still cycling but just slower um, you'll get the same results as if you did just a forty minute intermediate you know, sort of mid-pace yeah. cycle. So it's pretty yeah. amazing results-wise. So it's definitely, you know, if you're listening in and you haven't tried it, um, definitely look into HIT because I think it'd be really helpful when you age. But obviously you still need to be really aware of your own limits. That's what I will say because it is high intensity, you know, whether or not you're doing cardio and you need to be aware of your heart rate um, or you're doing weights and you need to be aware of what's too heavy for your joints, um, having that body awareness is definitely needed. Yes. <laughs> now, the biggest complaint that I tend to hear with, you know, the symptoms of menopause mainly is women waking up in the middle of the night. So, they're waking up and they can't get back to sleep 
or they might wake up because they're having like a night sweat or, you know, that type of thing. Um, we touched right. on before how if we're not getting enough sleep and then our cortisol levels are going to be higher and then we're going to reach for the caffeine and, you know, so on and so on, it can affect. But if somebody is sort of going, I'm pretty good in that, I I don't reach for the caffeine during the day and I'm still having this happen, what's some things that may can maybe dial in or look at to help? Yeah. So if they're kind of, yeah, if they're, good with everything else. They've got their sleep hygiene taken care of. Their um, exercise has been shown to be maybe even as equally beneficial to night sweats, hot flashes as uh, maybe a pharmacological approach. So that's Mm -hmm. huge. So making sure that exercise stays in there is really, or if they're not exercising, that's, you know, sometimes you wouldn't think right off the bat, hey, I'm going to exercise to get rid of my hot flashes, but it actually helps hugely. So that's super important. Things like uh, if we look at pharmacological stuff, of course, progesterone or prometrium, that would be kind of that side of stuff. That's your resty, nice resty one and can keep you sleeping maybe a little easier. Um, And then getting rid of all the biggies as much as possible, the caffeine, the alcohol, those sorts of things can fire those um, temperature changes up. Um, Even thinking about things like um, uh, beetroot. I don't know if you know much about beetroot. Um, juice sometimes that can help with the blood vessels and to keep them dilated and so we think about blood vessels stiffening through um, menopause postmenopause um, through aging as well but we still don't want them to become stiff we want them to be nice and pliable let that blood flow really nicely so things like that can open things up that might make a little bit of a change as well and of course the stress is huge but the control factors are pretty much all the same um, but exercise is huge for those so if you're not thinking that exercise has anything to do with those hot flashes and night sweats, it really does. Mm, that's interesting because I didn't I didn't realize that, but that's a great and easy place to start to and an easy thing to try to see if it does um, have an effect. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I'm when it comes <laughs> Yeah. And when it comes to, you know, either choosing you know, pharmacological or non-pharmacological solutions to help with some of the symptoms. How do you sort of suggest to women, you know, should they explore all the non-pharmacological ones first? You know, should they visit their GP? If they visit their GP off the bat and they say, I'm having hot flushes and night sweats and I just am not coping and the GP goes straight to pharmacological, should we then still do our own research through non-pharmacological or should we kind of trust the doctor and try the pharmacological approach <laughs> first? You can see my face. I'm like, oh, I'm asking this question. I know yeah. what the answer is yeah. going to be. I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah. But I, I know yeah. this is, there's lots of people out there that go, well, the doctor said, I should just, I should just take this. So, you know, I think it's something to be aware of. Absolutely. Yeah. I like the option number one first to explore both sides. I don't think there's, I think it's really personal choice when somebody's deciding I might need some medicine to help me get through this. I might need either hormones or antidepressants are sometimes, you know, they, they, they allow the happy hormones and the serotonin to kind of circulate around in the brain a little longer. So I can see why they're used um, or hormone therapy. The NAMs, their guidelines or their position statement is basically to help with um, genital urinary syndrome of menopause. 
uh, hormone therapy is kind of one of the best go-tos. And it does seem to have the best, um, or the most effect on night sweats and hot flashes. So that's where it gets us on the vasomotor symptoms. That's where it gets its best bang for the buck sort of thing. So say it hormone therapy might not work as directly on, it doesn't build bone density. It's not going to build muscle. It's not going to make you lose weight. You might get all those, you might get some of those results from, because you're sleeping better and not having night, night sweats and hot flashes and, you know, kind of in that little cycle. But um, so it can be really helpful. And that's a real personal decision. Um, I do talk to my clients because I'm a pelvic health physio. I do talk about vaginal estrogen a lot. That's kind of, um, there's a, you know, really seems so safe. Research supports it 100% and how, you know, when you look at the problems that women may start to have when their hormones change in the vaginal area, that it's really worth it to keep that, to keep those areas nice and happy. It's got all those estrogen receptors there. Topical estrogen, it only goes, the estrogen levels really only go up for the first two weeks and they come right back down to those menopausal, postmenopausal levels. It, so it doesn't activate anywhere else in the body. It's really staying very locally. So it's very safe. And that's really good for the health of the vaginal area. If somebody really doesn't like that idea for whatever reasons, then the hyaluronic acid is a good option. But when they're looking for products, or I might suggest even like if they're using, say, their dryer and they're using lubes, a lubricant, um, they want to make sure they get one that has the pH. If they're using a water base, they need to have the pH the same as the vaginal area, which is on average around 4.5. So some of those lubes can have pHs that are way different. Well, that's going to cause problems in that area or may cause problems. So we want to keep that area as close to the pH as possible. That it yeah. is naturally. Well, I have heard and too, then, I was going to say, um, just on that pH thing, even what you use to wash your body um, and your vagina, you know, if you're using different body washes and things, they can be very acidic. So making sure, again, you're trying to keep something as close to that pH as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And especially for people that are even more sensitive or maybe are prone to more issues there for sure. And then, of course, all the non-pharmacological options that we're totally in favor of, those should always be in there. Um, and that's difficult because you don't really get them. Come back to the beginning of the podcast where where do you get that information from? Because it's not easily offered. Um, but as we know, there's so many things you can do just to help yourself. So Going the hormone therapy route, totally fine, but the other part should absolutely be in there always. Yeah. And I think it kind of takes the pressure off the docs, the more information we have, because, you know, it does take a load off them. We, you know, we have all these expectations and there's somebody who went to school and studied a particular, you know, form of medicine, but it's hard to know every little thing and be, and they don't have the time to spend as well. So it's tough to get all those questions answered. Yeah, I think that's a big thing too, because I'm not sure what it's like over in the States, but here in Australia, you get 10 minutes. You get a 10 minute appointment 
Um, and if you need longer, then you have to pay for an extended appointment, which I think is 15 or 20 minutes. Um, but generally they try to keep you to under 10. And I know I've been to the doctor before and, you know, the, if you go with one, you're only really allowed to go with one thing that's wrong. If you try to bring a second thing up, they're like, oh, sorry, we don't have enough time for that. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's a t- tough system. <laughs> Yeah. So then we come back, the more we know, the better we'll be informed and maybe the less we even have to access that system, which would be great. Yeah. And as you said, doctors need to know a lot about a whole lot of different things. Um, So yeah, even if they have a referral network or whatever, um, if you can tap into people's referral networks, I think that can be really helpful too. Yeah. That would be a great addition. That's If I had one wish, I'd probably, that's what I'd like to see is more of a referral all-encompassing to all these different um, disciplines that can help and just have it be automatic, especially when it's something like menopause, that transition, because that's a long transition and there's a lot of things going on. And so it's kind of nice to have, it would, it would be nice to have all those pieces in place. Yeah. I think it's a hard thing to put in, you know, on a national level, but I know within my own small business, you know, I have a pelvic floor physio that I refer to. I have an osteopath, a myotherapist, you know, people that are local that I've checked out that I know are great. Um, and that way I know that there's because the other thing is you don't want to be sort of trying to work outside your box you can only do so much so if you can refer people on to other people then they're going to get the best expertise yes absolutely now I just before we finish up I want to talk about some of the myths or I guess misconceptions that women think is normal normal symptoms of being in, um, you know, perimenopause or menopause with their pelvic floor, such as it's normal to leak or it's normal to pee a little if you cough or laugh or, you know, can you kind of let us know what are the types of things that are normal and what are the types of things that we can change? Yeah, so those are definitely not normal, (laughs) but they're common. Um, and that can start even from pregnancy, right? And I have a, a child and then I'm going to pee for the rest of my life. And that still is out there. So um, it it's not normal just to even have these things just because we're aging. You know, I think we need to change our mindset around that because all you have to do is look towards that 80-year-old over there who isn't leaking. So that it's not just an aging thing. You know, we might be more prone to things as we get older, but if we can kind of stay on top of them, um, we don't have to be. So... It's not normal to start to have pain um, with sexual penetration. That means there's something going on there as well. Um, what else? What I was else were say, you thinking? Um, I think too, when it comes to engaging pelvic floor, a lot of women don't know how to do it correctly. Um, and that's where I find referring to a pelvic floor physio is really great. I know being in the Pilates studio, I can't physically see someone's pelvic floor. I can get a general idea of what's happening with when I see, like if there's bracing happening through the abdominals and things like that. But as far as correct activation of pelvic floor, I think that's where the pelvic floor physio comes in best. It's easiest to do an internal check. That's the best way, you know, just 
Same thing if somebody had a sore ankle, you got to get your hands on that ankle. So that is the best way to check and make sure that public floor is as healthy as it possibly can be. And if it's not, then what can we do to tweak it or change it? Do they need more muscle flexibility or is it more muscle strength? Is there a prolapse happening? Is that why they're feeling heaviness? And um, yeah. And when it comes to surgery, um, because there is, you know, surgery you can have um, here, we just refer to it as sling surgery for women that, you know, if they're um, having real issues with, um, you know, pelvic floor, as in they might feel that they're incontinent and that, that they will then go in for surgery and, and have this sling put in. Um, what's your take around surgery and, you know, people looking into that? Yeah. I think it should still always be last resort, um, but sometimes it's necessary. It also is personal choice. I've definitely had a few clients where they they just don't want to put the work in, into doing their exercises. They could, and they could actually improve, but they, they just um, would rather have a quicker fix. And so that's kind of their choice. So I just have to support them in that direction as well. But I definitely think for most, it should really should be last resort. And if you are thinking about having it, then at least get your public floor into the best possible shape it can be in beforehand, because the outcomes on the other end are going to be better. So if you know how to work those muscles before having something implanted in there and, and changed, you know, it's going to be way easier to figure it out afterwards when that proprioception might be a little different. And there's... You know, of course, there's other options too, like pessaries. And some women love their pessaries. Um, they help offload that heaviness, may stop, could um, reposition things a little bit so there could be le less or no leaking. So, you know, pessaries is an option as well. I think surgery is really the last, last resort. Um, yeah. you, you can make a lot of change in that pelvic floor. If somebody has a contraction, they have the ability to... Um, move those muscles well, and they can gain more strength. I find that the symptoms either could go away completely, even though the prolapse is still there, or they can um, just manage those symptoms to the point where I don't need to have that surgery. I'm, I'm, I've got far better control. Yeah, well, I agree. I always think surgeries should be our last resort. But I know that it is an option and, you know, maybe necessary for some people, um, but I wasn't sure how prevalent it tends to be and what you see. I, I don't see it very often, but I do have um, women um, in the studio that do go off and have sling surgery. So I was curious too. Yeah, I, it's a, I see quite a few. It's still pretty, pretty common, <laughs> for maybe a little too common, but yeah. But I've definitely seen women, if they have the mesh, there's issues afterwards as well. Not all the time, though. I've also seen women have mesh and no problems and, and love it. So, yeah, it's different for everybody, isn't it? It's always the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, before we finish up, I know you have a course that you're putting together. So can you share a little bit about that with our listeners as well? Yeah, for sure. So... It's a course about menopause, of course. Um, I've designed it, so it's going to be over about four weeks. And it's an online course. And so there'll be modules to work through, gobs of information, and lots of tools and strategies all about, although I'll touch on hormone therapy and talk about it so there's a good understanding of it, 
it's largely all on our lifestyle tweaks we can make around nutrition. What's most important to get in this time period of our lives and exercise? What is research supporting? How do we tweak things um, for weight gain, et cetera, stress and sleep? And of course, pelvic health. What are the best things to do around that? And there'll be a once weekly Zoom call. So that way we can all gather together. There'll only be a maximum of 10 women in each class. So that way we have lots of time to answer questions. And every week there'll be something new added in there. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. So it'll be available in January. And if anybody was interested, they could always just go to my website, kathywatsonphysio.ca. They can either contact me and just email me, let me know, hey, I'd like to be kept in the loop. Or if they want to get a little freebie on my homepage, they just page down just a little bit. And there's a um, there's a little core handout there. So there'll be five different videos that'll be delivered to their inbox. And that'll be um, all about different ways of looking at your core and what you can do with that. So you can get a little freebie and then you can get on the list. Amazing. Awesome. Well, I'll link up your website in the show notes as well. Um, and then if people want to follow you on socials, where should they head for that? Instagram, Kathy Watson Physio. Of course, I'm on Facebook, Kathy Watson Physio. I've kept it really simple, right? It's the same name all the time. <laughs> and then, of course, my website, kathywatsonphysio.ca. They can check me out on YouTube, Kathy Watson Physio. <laughs> and so I haven't put a lot of new stuff on there lately, but I'm planning on it. You know, it's one of those many things that's in the list, but I do have lots of videos on there. So lots of things to show people and help them find find their transverse abs. How do they, some tips on how can they, activate their pelvic floor, how to release things, um, different little exercise sessions on that. So there's lots of information on there as well. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I think this is a a really important topic, something I am always asked about, but, um, you know, I haven't journeyed through these stages yet. I'm getting there, but, um, yeah, something that I think, you know, having, as you said, more information is better for everybody. And if we can just be armed with that information, then we're going to have the tools already to be able to, to change things. So thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, Kate. That was awesome. Thanks for listening into the podcast. Please hit subscribe to be updated for each time we release a new podcast.